Hello and welcome to episode seven of <laughs> the Thinker Podcast. Brilliant. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't get the Strictly Come Dancing reference, it's Strictly that, Come Dancing. That is the way that Len Goodman says seven. Yes. Said. Oh, past tense. Sad. I know. I know. For any non-Strictly viewers, I apologise. Um, <laughs> this week has been pretty damn hot. Uh, London has been thirty degrees every single day. I'm personally loving it. Shah, how do you keep cool? What's your favourite way of keeping cool in this weather? This is also a shout out to Sarah, who I work with, who has been doing new starter questions that are imaginative. And one of the questions today in Friday's demo was, how do you keep cool in the weather? Which is also a nice Demi Lovato reference. Um, I avoid taking the central line, is how I keep cool. (laughs) I've been getting up slightly earlier. Sometimes I fail to do that and I'm really? slightly late so for got... work. I now go on the cer- the circle line. Because Gosh, it's... is the central really that congested? It's really bad. For anyone who doesn't live in London, the central line is, uh, as the name would suggest, goes through central London and therefore has all of the commuters ever on it. No, no, but it also has no air conditioning. It has no And it's really small. Yeah. And, um, and underground. Yeah. It feels like being in, a, in an artery. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the tube is like isn't it but and then when you go and then when you go to is, a station that is underground you're like wow there's a i don't know <laughs> some kind of hole here um it's it's a relief of some sorts yeah no it has been really really hot i personally really like the hot weather i think i i respond really well but to i sun. think that we're stealing it from somebody else <laughs> <Just so British. laughs> no accept it there is somebody that is missing out yeah, but we deserve it how many summers have we had rain and cold all of july and august very very true no it's we a welcome it. change yes. i love it but yes. i am avoiding the sexual i'm also line. loving wimbledon i'm loving the vibe in london this week has been amazing we've had wimbledon we've had the world cup oh, we've had pride we've had pride everywhere there's a rainbow flag all over i was in the city yesterday there were flags everywhere i can't so wait for tomorrow charlotte and i are so both. exciting we will make sure that we post all of the photos ever because we have some incredible outfits um, <laughs> we're both say you're so <laughs> yep. um we're very excited i think i think this is so great to see pride so celebrated i don't Absolutely. think five years ago this would have been the case even last year i didn't no. notice it no, neither as much. Neither did I. No, so I'm I really, really love it. I, I'm really uh, looking forward to it tomorrow. Mm. But yes, this week has been a very up and down week, and the main thing that I wanted to share in the intro is this incredible event that I went to about mental health, which was a screening of a short film. It's about twelve minutes, which was created by a friend of mine called Anna McGrain, and she just did the most extraordinary job of voicing people's struggles in a really relatable way also created incredibly beautiful film about something that lots of people wouldn't consider to be beautiful but the vulnerability of it Mm. and the honesty of it and the empathy that was conveyed through this and this incredible transformation that happened so it was focused on one girl who's called Lyra which is the name of this short film and it goes through her journey incredible matching of this older actress with a younger actress who I met at the end actually she's only 10 and I was so confused I thought have they been spending 10 years filming this film because they literally look identical really it was so weird that's and she did such a brilliant job and then at the end essentially the person who had the character who had issues with mental health becomes a Mm. mental health um sort of uh what do you call it mentor or 
like someone helping other people. Ah, like an actual professional. Yes. Mental pro- yes. I find that so interesting because I. So that was the arc. I I what an interesting short film. I really want to see it because yeah. I actually think in some ways, I think that's really powerful that you have someone a mental health professional who's had a mental health issue. But at the same time, I find that really confronting. I mean, mm. even though you may have had years and years and years, you know, space from it, surely things you're seeing in your patients but could think, be triggering. Yeah. Yes, interesting. But I think that the level of empathy is just so different and that's mm. what was communicated in that they yeah. had these sessions at the beginning and it was just brilliant. They had things... So one patient was just... I say patient, it's a you know, it's a person and they were just in the session mm. and they were just playing with the fray on their jeans and it was little details like that where you just, you can see the nervousness and the anxiety that everyone can relate to. Everyone. And it was these close-up shots that just communicated such powerful messages throughout the entire film. She did such an incredible job mm. and I can't wait to see what else this girl comes up with. Oh, that's so fantastic. Really I think good. I think as well, just see, seeing mental health on screen, seeing it when where it's sort of tangible and being able to be like oh i can relate to that or yeah. oh i can see that in myself we're all on a spectrum all the time totally. no one is no one is completely sane or completely insane at any one point mm. and i think that's why the vulnerability is so attractive and so he- healthy for us to see mm. because we yeah. all need to see it absolutely and mm. the she also had um, a performance from delilah montague who's how i know anna who's a great family friend who will be on this podcast at some point yes very she exciting she's a singer songwriter and performed two songs at that and also this absolutely amazing uh guy who did some spoken word um who we will also link in the show notes because he's fantastic mm. what is this week meant to you other than the heat um, what has this week meant to me? Um, I think this week has been fairly up and down as well. A lot of changes, uh, a lot of, um, things just personally that I've just, I guess, changed a lot in the sense of what will be happening from September onwards and, um, things. So a lot of my best friends have, uh, got their results from university and their results from finals and, and it's just a time of year, like exam time. You mm-hmm. can just really empathise with the sort of stress of it all mm-hmm. and the lots of decisions having to be made. Lots of decisions. I think that's what this week was like for me. Also, um, I had the most brilliant day in Brighton on Monday with one of my best friends and her sister, who has the most gorgeous boat um, in Brighton Marina, and we had a lovely day in Brighton, um, which was great. Um, but it's been, it's gone by far too quickly. I feel as though it's been, it's been every day has been but five days, but it's also gone by so fast. Yeah. And, uh, time is so, so strange. It is strange. It is strange. But with Wimbledon on and for this week's figure, I've been very excited to record this episode. So the first figure that we are going to be talking about this week is a very famous tennis player named Novak Djokovic. And the reason that we have chosen him is because of Wimbledon, um, which is probably the most famous sporting event in the world, or one of the most. Yeah. Um, and it sort of takes over southwest London every year. Uh, and as tennis fans, I think that that's something I really want to do. And it's actually suggested to me um, by Arthur... He said, you should look at Novak Djokovic, a very interesting character. And he also suggested Drogba. Interesting. Right. So, and they have very, they have some similarities. So that is why we're discussing Djokovic. Mm-hmm. What was your favourite thing about Djokovic? 
Um, my favourite thing about Djokovic is the Novak Djokovic foundation. Yeah, so cool. It's so cool. And also... The is this fa- the parallel that you think between yeah. Didier Drogba, who we discussed in episode three? Three? Yes. 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 Who is a footballer? Yes. Um, and about using, you know, some of the most famous athletes have the highest salaries. Mm-hmm. Well, not the highest salaries, but some of the highest salaries. They have yeah. ridiculous amounts of wealth from their prize money. And actually, it takes a certain individual... And sponsorships. To, to really put it to good use and he really has and what I find the most interesting thing about Djokovic is everyone I've spoken about Djokovic to this week has some instinctual reaction to him which is often negative really? yeah a lot of people don't like him because on the court he does come across as fairly stoic fairly uh, yeah. brash and he gets a bit moody sometimes. But he eats the grass when he wins, which is hilarious. It is hilarious. I think that's my favourite thing about him. <laughs> <laughs> so when he won Wimbledon for the first time, if anyone wasn't watching the match, he has always wanted to eat the grass. Oh my and so he picked up a blade of grass and just ate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yes, the Novak yes. Djokovic Foundation has done some extraordinary work. Absolutely. And I think... The reason that Djokovic has, I don't know, made an impression on me, certainly this week, is I did not realise his history with the Serbian war and actually how affected he was by that. And mm. that's why he dedicates all of his money and spare time and he's, uh, his foundation is set up to help not only young children but refugees mm. and he's very emotional talking about refugees and people who are fleeing from war zones so what, because he actually did like yeah what is did. his personal story with that so he was born in serbia i believe he grew up in belgrade um i actually w- listened to this amazing podcast um called the school of greatness by lewis Howes, um and it's uh the episode is called how Djokovic came world number one. Ooh. Yeah, it's really good. And it's a really good insight into his personal life and how he met his wife and where he grew up. And he describes, you know, running from... They were bombed a lot in the years. I think the war raged on between 91 and 99. Mm -hmm. And he remembers spending, you know, weeks at a time in, in in air raid shelters and running from shelling and hearing all of that and seeing all of that. And even though no one in his family was killed, many of his friends lost loved ones, lost parents, had to flee, etc. Which is why he has such a passion for helping those who are fleeing, for, especially Syria, I think was one of the mm-hmm. things that most affected him. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting uh, in terms of you don't really know that about him. We don't really know anything about him. And he also says that that helps him realise that actually a lot of the things in life that we worry about really don't matter. Yeah. Um, he's met thousands of refugees who literally have no home and nothing and yeah. no money and no real future. And yet we worry about all of these things that we really shouldn't be worrying about. Yeah. And um, Do you think that that mental strength comes onto the court and his being a factor in what makes him such a great tennis player. Definitely. Mm. And also just taking into what matters and what doesn't matter. Yeah. I think that's really important. Because he is quite a calm player, I'd mm. say. I don't. Mm. He doesn't lose his temper, mm. which several other tennis players 
have been known to do. A.K. Curios, but yes. <laughs> and also Andy Murray in early days. Yeah. Andy Murray does just look like he's in a bad mood a lot of the time. Although yeah. I'm a very big fan of Andy Murray. Me too. Um, but He yes. absolutely won me over when he cried. I think everyone's heart just melted. You know what? No, but you know what won me over with Andy Murray is the fact that every match he ties his wedding ring into his shoe. So cute. That's so cute. Like, <laughs> do you think it's become one of those weird superstitious things? Must though? be. Yeah. Probably won Wimbledon with it and is now thinking. Yeah. So to do Ma- it. Murray won Wimbledon for the first time, beating Djokovic. Right. Um, and Djokovic was had a very great concession speech for that. I remember him. I saying. remember that. That was so and, brilliant. Um, the way so he, gracious, so gracious, and the way he talks about his wife as well is really, really, really lovely. Um, they met when he was, I think, eighteen and she was nineteen, and he basically says that you know the most important thing in life is uh, the experiences that you share with a partner that you really love, and to build a family. And I thought that was again very sweet and obviously something that. I don't know, it's fairly cliche and we all think, you know, we don't like to talk about especially being British. But but, but that is essentially... Lots of cliches are cliches because they're true. Mm. And he's, I think he has definitely been on a journey of self... I think he'd fit into Bali very well. (laughs) I mean, he literally, he talks about enlightenment, he talks about breathing, he talks about yoga, (laughs) talks about plant-based, talks about respecting the earth. Mm -hmm. Very hippie. I so something it. that I looked up in relation to, <laughs> to Djokovic was his vegan restaurant. Yeah, in Monaco. He also has had another cafe, and I think he's opening a third restaurant which is going to offer mm. free food to people in need. Right, again, coming from this yeah. very charitable side of him. Yeah. Um, but I also looked up other tennis players who have their own businesses. So Venus Williams has a clothing company called Eleven. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and Sharapova, I think this was during her 15-month ban oh, yeah. due to... Uh, drug tests yeah um started a confectionery business i think it is sweets yeah it's called sugar pover (laughs) (laughs) why does that make me laugh well it's just i don't know anyway it is a bit a little bit weird um who she's been knocked out already about first round and so is joanna conda which is sad Apologies to anyone who isn't a tennis fan, but I'm a massive <laughs> tennis fan and I'm very, very excited about Wimbledon. Speaking of Wimbledon, uh, we've both worked at Wimbledon, mm. right? We both Tough two weeks. Tough. Very tough. I think it's one of the biggest catering events in Europe ever. Mm. Um, and I believe they go through 34 tonnes of strawberries, something like 22,000 bottles of champagne. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. It is. It's so extravagant. It's so much excess. I find that really difficult. It's I've got so to say. difficult. And when we, were... I put on quite a lot of weight during the, um, <laughs> the two weeks of Wimbledon because I hate food waste. Yeah. So I much. was eating constantly to try and and in order to not yes yeah you do you do you do you absolutely. Do. I had so many scones and oh, yeah. so much rich food throughout that. Yeah. That I remember. I think I went travelling straight away and I was in Burma and I was like this is amazing, there's mm. food that is not so recognisable and therefore I'm a bit more cautious about eating it and I just am not eating so much rich food all the time. <laughs> we would be standing over the bins in the kitchen and we'd have this tray of whatever it was, like yeah. coffee or whatever, and it would be a full tray, we'd have to chuck it because you're not allowed to store it, and we'd literally be able to just pick a, I really a hate item, it. take a I bite really, and then throw really it out. It. Because you know what I would love it. is it's for awful. them to do a partnership with a charity in London, and I know there are several, mm. about food waste. Yeah. 
but they're so scared about the legal aspect of it. This it's is where I just think that it really is absolute madness that we can't have some sort of partnership between these huge, huge events where there's so much food that can be taken by people who really, really need it. And it's all going into the bin. It's, it's sickening. And I think that happens so much in the food industry. Um, but that was the first time I was really exposed to it. Um, another good fun fact about Djokovic, um, just bringing it back to him, mm. is that he holds the record with John McEnroe for the longest streak of undefeated wins, which is 42 matches. Wow! I know! 42 unbeaten matches? Yep. That's so cool! It's very cool. Okay, I have another weird fun fact. Okay, I'm good. I love a weird fun fact. You'll, you'll love this. Okay. Do you remember that song... Hello by Martin Solveig. Sing it. I just came to say <laughs> hello. Oh yeah. He's in the video. Djokovic. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's something just to do with character. tennis. There's definitely something oh. to do with tennis in that cover. Gosh. I know. Well, I, okay. Weird fun fact that I just thought of to do with songs. You know the guy um, who created the song um, of. Uh, <laughs> B.O.B. Airplanes. Yes. How does it go again? Um, the airplanes and the knives. <laughs> that one. Okay. He spent all of the profits from that song and he donated it to causes that prove that the world is flat. No, yes. he didn't. Yes. Google it. It's true. <laughs> oh my God. I know. It's not weird. That's so weird. I know. That just reminded me of that. I don't know why they remind me of that. It was very oh weird. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, I have one final question. Okay. When you're watching a Wimbledon final, mm. who are the two people that you most enjoy watching in a Wimbledon final? Oh, okay. I enjoy watching Federer because watching Federer play is just... Oh, it's He's like, pretty beautiful. He is beautiful to it's watch. very graceful. Very graceful. But he can be quite arrogant. I, I actually quite enjoy a Djokovic-Federer final. They're, they're quite yes, interesting. That and is because a good I don't one. have the, the Very great, different styles. I also don't have the Great Britain pull, which is, you can feel it from your belly button. You're just like, <laughs> I have to put Andy Murray in. If I don't, I'm a terrible person. You know what I find annoying about Andy Murray? Mm. If he wins, he's British. If he loses, he's Scottish. Don't start this. That's 100% right, and we're not going to go into that now. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, that's no, a good answer though but, but I, I think, think that's Djokovic what I Federer was... is a very good answer I think so too the second figure that we are going to be talking about today is that marriage is at its lowest rate on record and the last time that this was actually surveyed was in 2015 which showed that in England and Wales there were 239,020 marriages so records began in 1864, I believe. And also what's interesting is that the population is increasing. So mm-hmm. despite population increasing and there being more people, marriage is actually decreasing. And there yeah. were many spikes in history, most notably in wartime, mm-hmm. enough, or just after war. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of hence the baby boomer generation is yeah. its name. Its name, yeah. Um, and even in, I think there were spikes in 2003 as well. So mm. it's it's definitely been of the more recent end that it's actually been on the decline, I think, within the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Um, but the other reason that this is particularly topical um, currently mm-hmm. is that a couple who are called... 
Amazing Rebecca couple. Steinfield and Charles Keaton, I yep. hope I'm pronouncing their names right, yep. have been <clears throat> campaigning for the last four years, Absolutely. I believe, uh, for heterosexual couples to also be allowed to have civil partnerships. And what does a civil partnership offer? you may ask, mm-hmm. um, and what a civil partnership means is that traditionally it was an act that was passed in 2004 to allow same-sex couples to have similar legal and financial rights mm-hmm. as marriage. Um, this was before, obviously, gay marriage was mm-hmm. became legal, and it basically means that you can have legal and financial protection for both parties in the event of the relationship ending. Mm-hmm. Um, it is completely free of religious connotations like marriage is which is something i want to talk to you about Mm -hmm. and um in terms of the institution of marriage a civil partnership kind of precedes that it's not about any kind of tradition it's just a legal agreement and i guess a commitment as well Mm -hmm. to another party Mm -hmm. i thought that that was interesting with the institution bit and that hit home for me yes because rebecca describes marriage as basically being an institution where a woman is someone's property going from her father's i don't know ownership to her then husband's yes and has literally symbolically given away yes literally and that they feel that no matter how much you make marriage your own because ultimately everybody's marriage is their own and mm. they can Absolutely. shape those traditions and right. you can not be given away you yes. can have a you know outside wedding you can have both yeah. parents walk you down the aisle you like can my walk mom. down the aisle yeah. on your own you mm-hmm. can i mean you can make that tradition the way that it works for you right however they didn't feel that they wanted to become part of that tradition and institution yeah and the word that they use to describe civil partnerships which i find really interesting is symmetrical yeah because they feel that there's a patriarchy aspect to marriage that they can't shake and that they don't want to be a part of Mm. and that they were fighting for their right to have a legal recognition of their relationship so that they could have next of kin tax Mm. all of those benefits benefits you'd have in marriage in marriage but not be husband and wife because they don't want that. Right. And when I was looking into this, I thought it was actually really confronting. I found it really confronting because I've always wanted to get married. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading this, I thought, oh my gosh, they're absolutely right about everything that they're saying. Mm. And I almost don't want to think too much about it because I don't know. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't actually... I, I, there's still part of me that still wants to get married mm. but I still know that they're actually quite right in what they're saying and yeah. it is an institution and it is part of the patriarchy and it is very much a possession however it thing. is also in. I think it depends on your personal experience of marriage and how mm. your parents marriage was and how your grandparents marriage was and mm. how that whole family tradition goes on because in some ways I would really like to be part of the tradition of wonderful marriages which have provided a really central focus for a family and have been such a celebration of love and commitment. Mm. And in some ways, I think that it's really amazing that we can be part of that. And marriages have existed for thousands of years. And how incredible that we've got... But so is the patriarchy. True. 
and very, also, very true. surely you can have a loving relationship and be the totally, I'm not saying with a civil partnership. Yes. No, no, of course. I'm playing devil's avocado yeah. because I'm, I'm genuinely... <laughs> devil's yeah. avocado. I am. I know, no, because I... Do you I, ever say devil's advocate instead of devil's <laughs> avocado? <laughs> no, because people <laughs> close to me, aka you know who you are, play devil's advocate the entire time, so I refuse to say it. Um, <laughs> um, I also want to put a point on that because I read mm-hmm. a very good coverage of this in the week, which mm-hmm. I love, yeah. um, which was... Quoting Alex Hearn, who said that we have, with marriage, we can have connotations with the patriarchy and with institutions and with several negative things, but we can also have negative connotations with civil partnerships in terms of homophobia. Right. Because this is something that has been born out of same-sex couples were not allowed to be married and therefore they could have civil partnerships. Ah, so so the argument um, would be that... Why are we even considering civil partnership? We should just have marriages for, for heterosexual couples. Heterosexual couples. Yes. Everyone. Okay. Devil's avocado again. Surely then we should just have civil partnerships for everyone because that would make and it have easy. no marriage and have no marriage. I personally think that given the culture that exists now mm. about feminism and women empowerment and anti patriarchy, that in a hundred years marriage will be very much outdated. Mm. And actually, arguably, we're looking at. Oh, civil partnerships being the future especially mm. because we now have 3.3 million couples living together and marriage, who aren't married, who aren't married. Mm-hmm. marriage is declining a lot of people are deciding to just you know buy a property together go into a legal agreement yes. together being love what does love have a label yeah does it need to have a label mm-hmm. um, mm. um i remember speaking to um my friend hugo about this and he had a comment <laughs> Hugo features on the figure once again. Sorry, no, but he had Can't a comment. wait to meet him tomorrow. No, but he had a comment that was interesting, <laughs> and I don't know if he remembers this, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but he remembers, I remember him saying, marriage is a man's insecurity. Really? Yeah. I think it's a woman's insecurity. Being like, that's mine, and then that making it feel secure, whereas surely we should be able to feel secure without having to put that label. But this thing you think it's a woman's insecurity. I don't know how I feel if it's a woman's or a man's security. I think there's actually both going on I think there. it's because I've read this um, book by Leonard Schlein called Sex, Time and Power. It's mm. really interesting. Mm. Um, and it talks about where marriage came from and it talks about the public commitment of love as a driving factor into why it became a tradition. Mm, my so dad it's agrees. really interesting. My dad agrees. Because there's something about getting in front of all of your loved ones, family and friends, and saying, I'm going to commit to this person for the rest of my life, mm. that cements it in a very uh, public but way. you can do that with a civil partnership. You can. I mean, you have you a can. ceremony. But what as... I was speaking to a few people about was how that audience of a wedding mm. can become part of the marriage because marriage is never going to be something that's easy mm. and that when you share it with all of your closest family and friends and your community and your society, they are also part of this relationship and making it work and making it and helping you through the hard times. You could, but, but no, the I know. Disillusion I'm sorry divorce. to be so annoying. I'm just trying to <laughs> no, 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 I'm trying I know. to reiterate it's... this point, which I think is a good one. And the reason I'm reiterating it is because there's some a voice in my head of why why do you want to get married? You know, does this mm. go again can you be dare I say it, can you be a feminist and still get married? Yes. Given the connotations of the patriarchy and being, you know, it being 
like a somewhat of a possession or women yes, are, I and being for me a man's security. I, so I do speak. think that you can make your wedding and your marriage be what you want. Can you take your husband's name and be a feminist? I'm playing devil's avocado here. Yes, I think you can because I think that's your choice. Mm. I don't think that you should be forced to take it. I think that mm. it's very much your choice. Mm. Well, do you think in a hundred years that would be abnormal to take it? Um, I don't know. I think there's a, an aspect of children as well because mm. I think that if you do intend to have children with your husband or wife, having all all of you having the same name, I think there's something Easier. in that. Definitely. And it, you feel like a solidified <clears throat> unit, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Mm. No, I, no, but I actually looked yeah. up some really interesting differences between marriage and civil partnership. Yes, and I'll okay, share yes. this. Do, it's in do. a table. Really, really good. Okay, yeah. so marriage needs words and the vows in order to make it legal. With civil partnership, it's just a signature. Yeah. You don't need to actually say anything out loud. Okay. Interesting. That is interesting. On marriage, this is a very patriarchy aspect of it. Really? Only the father's names are listed on your marriage certificate. Yeah, I know. But with civil partnership, both parents' names of each person getting married. Oh, we're being too sensitive to the patriarchy. I mean, now that we have, <laughs> now that we have identified the patriarchy, do we now see it everywhere? And now we can't sort of escape from it. Uh, potentially. I think it's also what we personally choose to listen to. True. And um, guilty feminist and other podcasts that we listen to. Mm. The P word comes, oh, yeah. comes up a lot. Yeah. But I think it is good to be mindful of it and to be questioning things. And Definitely. and I think ultimately it does come down to choice. And I think that everybody deserves to have the choice of what legal recognition, if you want that, mm. works for you. Absolutely. And I, and I think personally, um, I really want to have a successful marriage because my parents didn't. And I also really want to get married regardless of whether children include that or not. I'd say the same. A completely separate entity. Again, mm. because I my parents did not have that. It was very much like, yeah, want to have children. Mm. Um, Do you think that the fact that we both have divorced parents, <clears throat> obviously it changes the way that we see mm. marriage, but it's really hard to know how much? I think it gives us stronger views on marriage. For the friends of mine... I think it have... makes us think about it a lot more than other people who haven't Definitely. had that. All of my closest it's not friends a default. who have very happily married... Well, not necessarily happily, but married parents, they don't really think about it as much as we do. <laughs> yeah. They really don't. And that makes sense. It's mm. been a massive part of our lives. Divorce is a huge trauma mm. to have early on. And arguably... If you didn't have the marriage in the first place, would it be less of a trauma? Or is it that idea of your yeah, parents I've, I've not wanting that? To be, yeah, exactly. And this is something I was actually speaking to my mum about this morning, was that the Scottish and English and Welsh law are mm. very, very different, which I find really interesting. In Scotland, I feel, are actually really far ahead in loads of different things. They, you know, Upskirting in Scotland has been banned since 2015. The, um, arguably due to kilts. <laughs> arguably due to kilts. No, 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 but I still, agree, I agree. Um, the domestic abuse bill, which is going through, I think, later mm. this summer, has been in Scotland for a long time, as far as I'm aware. And with Scotland, you everything is split and it's equal. With England, there's an aspect of blame that comes into the divorce. Yes. And with Scotland, they don't do that. And I think it's really interesting because I think that as soon as you start talking about blame and that comes into the divorce and the legal proceedings, everything can just become so much more sour and toxic than it needs to be. Absolutely. I mean, it was venom for me. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, venom for about a year. Yeah. yeah. And he gets very, very bitter. I think that's I think that's good in the sense of Scotland where it's just split. Yes. And it's like done. And There's the emotional no, aspect doesn't have to come into that legal yeah. discussion. Absolutely. Mm. Why do you think and because I know you agree with me on this, we've both or do you? we've both grown up wanting to get married. Yes. That's that was the Okay, thing yeah, I no, yeah, up. yeah, I agree with that. My question to you why do we want to get married? Why is it entrenched in us to want to get married? I don't know because I don't feel as though I've been conditioned to want that. But I also don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it comes from. Because either. some of my earliest memories are playing with my friends and pretending to get married. I married Air a lot. I married, I, I, was... I married my friend Iona so many <laughs> I times. I never actually married another person. I just married... Iona was always taller than me, so she was always the man. And we married about <laughs> 150 times. I'm not even kidding. But I just remember it's really distinct. And it's really mm. early. Yeah. And it was one of my favourite things to do. I know. Same. And I don't know why. Mm. I don't know why. And chick flicks, some of my favourite ones are always the ones which involve End weddings. marriage. Or get, have weddings or... Like 27 dresses. Amazing. Yeah. Bride wars. Princess diaries. Yeah. This, I mean, I can go on and on. How do you propose a civil partnership? Because you can't say, will you marry me? You can't, you know, like, what do you say? Will you partner me? That's weird. <laughs> I feel like this is where I have an issue with it because I don't mm. like marriages that occur because of conversations this comes from a personal yep. opinion i like that creation of an event that comes with getting married and i feel that if it's a civil partnership that isn't where does that tradition fit into it and is that tradition actually patriarchal as well um i think my answer to that would be uh the devil's advocate response which is why do we need one event or one thing to mm. prove that we love someone surely that should be something very true ever evolving uh civil partnership i think is just it's more just a legal agreement if you have property if you have mm -hmm. money if you have children it's very smart to do so if you yeah. wanted to make it a ceremony i'm sure people would have ways of mm broaching that and mm. being like let's let's make a part let's have a party to celebrate yeah. our civil partnership you know yeah. showing our commitment or a commitment ceremony mm -hmm. i feel like there'll be um opposite sex couples that have commitment ceremonies more now mm -hmm. that civil partnerships are now legal i think there are so many avenues to go through with this topic i think absolutely. it's absolutely fascinating and i think the financial aspect of it is key in why this has been Definitely. a drop as well Definitely. because the average wedding costs twenty-seven thousand pounds and also women now are owning their own money and having their own careers which means they don't feel the need to I'm not saying that all women have felt this but traditionally felt the need to get married for financial stability yeah uh, and there's been children. a dowry aspect of it which i find really weird oh that was a so property related that was the original marriage agreement isn't it yeah um and now women have their own careers and it's like mm. well actually i don't need you mm. to to support me so i'm just gonna support yeah. myself and also things that you know the the standard of living not the standard of living the price of living the cost of living has got so much more in the price of property and if you you're spending that amount of money on one day one evening but you could have something that is bricks and mortar instead. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's a very changing world. I'm really interested to see that when they do publish the results for hopefully 2017 or 2018, how much has it dropped and how much have civil partnerships increased and Absolutely. where are these stats going to go? I know. The third figure 
for this week's episode is The Dream, which was painted by Pablo Picasso on the 24th of January 1932, which I know is a very specific date, but it's because that image is from an exhibition that we saw last Sunday at the Tate, which was an exhibition of Picasso's work from the year 1932, because he had a very creative year. Um, for reasons that we will go on to discuss. Mm. Um, and this image specifically, I think, was probably the most profound and the most provocative of all of the images that we saw. Yeah, it, I don't think it. that it was my favourite, but I think that it, it captures mm. the year and the exhibition itself, which is obviously why they have chosen it. And his frame as, of mind as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, which is why they chose this image to publicise the exhibition. Yeah. And what I find really interesting is that once you've read the caption, you can't stop seeing this incredibly sexual aspect to this painting. But until you've noticed it, you don't notice it, so they get away with having this as, as the cover. Yes. So, do you want to explain what, <laughs> what this is? So, the image that we're talking about um, is a painting called The Dream, like I said, and it is of... Picasso's 22-year-old lover, Marie-Therese Walter. I hope that's how you pronounce it, because it sounds yeah. so English for a French woman. Um, <laughs> and as you can see, it is her reclined in an armchair, which is a common theme. She, He obviously sees... This is obviously the way that he wants to portray her a mm. lot, because there's a lot of images of mm -hmm. her in a chair. And she's got her hands over her... Womb. Womb. Or slightly lower. Lower. <laughs> you can see one of her breasts that's there. There were a lot of boobs in the exhibition. Oh my god. I mean, she must have had amazing boobs. Or he had the mind he of a 17 totally, year old boy. Totally obsessed. He was obsessed. And she but also her... portrayed them in really creative and uh, beautiful ways. I actually really loved it. It was great. It was great. And you can see that her <laughs> hair is blonde. We know that. And mm. her head is tilted to one side, which is quite a, it's quite a sexy, kind of carefree. Mm hmm. Pose, I think the, the beads that drape over her neck mm. is just oh mm. so sensual, very sensual, and you can see that at the top of her head, um, that it's sort of split into two, which and he did a lot actually because did. in lots of them it ends up being two people kissing in mm. one face mm. to explain that as well. But well, with this in particular, not kissing. <laughs> um, it's actually an erect penis. <laughs> If you can see that. If you can't see it, go onto the Instagram, it is on there, or you can Google Picasso the Dream and you will see that the top of her face is right. So so not only do we have the sensual aspects of the image that we can see with her hands, the pearls, her boobs, like how she sat, mm. but clearly this is what he had on his mind. Right, right. And 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 actually, um, most of the exhibition was about his relationship with her, I would mm -hmm. say. And actually, we but get elements of a breakdown with his wife. And we get Olga so as well. much more from about the insight of their relationship and his frame of mind than we would from any photograph. I mean, this mm. is like looking at 50 photographs. Yeah. And you can work out so much about their relationship and where he was at. Yeah. But I think what I said to you when we were standing in front of this painting as well, that there's a real voyeuristic, to use that word again, which means mm. that you're looking at something that you're not necessarily supposed to be looking at. Yeah. And with lots of pieces of 
are that have been described as voyeuristic I personally don't see them in that way but I think that everyone has different elements but with this mm. painting I just feel as though it's so intensely personal and sexual that you mm. just you do feel like you are looking through a keyhole absolutely but it's also a sort of weird it's a it's an insight into their relationship in a way that you wouldn't ever get through a photograph as exactly as you said oh completely you but the, the context of this as well just to explain is that picasso was 50 she was 22 and they had met outside the gallery lafayette when she was 17 and he was 45 and i read this absolutely beautifully written article from Mary Therese Walter's grandson which we will mm. link and he's explaining what happened when when they met and how his grandmother remembered it and how she said that Picasso told her that she had a very interesting face and that they would do great things together mm. and she agreed to see him because she thought that he had a lovely smile oh my gosh and it's this sort of funny it feels quite love at first sight when you read about the story. 17. I know. I mean, that's so young. I know. Although, I mean, I know it was a different time. It was, you know, I suppose 80-odd years ago. Mm. But 1745 just seems so mm. different in terms of maturity. Yeah. That I find that so hard to believe. But then at the same time... There are lots are of relationships just, just, now that still oh, happen yeah. like And are that. we all just souls in different bodies? Like, I don't know, you know... Yeah, and is age just a number? Yes, mm. I personally think so. Mm. Well, I'm quite a nosy person. <laughs> and I thought that from the exhibition, my nosy curiosity of their affair and their relationship was actually very satisfied <laughs> by simply just walking around the exhibition. Yeah. You can see so much and you understand so much. And um, I was reading this really interesting article as well about Picasso and about this exhibition in the year 1932. And they said um, that it was, 1932 was the height of his affair with uh, Marie Therese Walter. As you can see, you can feel the touch and the sensuality and the desire. Um, they also talk about this love affair being a sort of trigger point for this 12 months of creativity. And I mm. wanted to ask you, uh, do you think it was the affair or the love that triggered the creative streak or was it the combination? And the reason I ask that is because when someone is falling in love or when you're in love with someone, that definitely triggers all sorts of different thoughts and different, I guess, lease of life. And hormones. And hormones, to speak. But also, is it the affair? I mean, you know... He is it the secrecy of it? The secrecy, mean? and that meant that the excitement was sort of mm. excelled. And it meant that he was then, you know... I mean, this is obviously an expression of what he was feeling and couldn't really say yeah. to his and family. deep desire. Or to the public. But maybe deep desire in not being able to fully possess it. Right. Because he was also married. Yeah, with a son right. as well. Um... I think that's a really interesting question and I don't know that I can fully answer it because I've never had an affair myself mm. Mm. but from the books I've read and the films I've watched and even just learning about artists affairs I think that the intensity of it is taken in a different direction and maybe that fed into creative energy in a way that wouldn't necessarily have been the same as if it had been an open relationship that they were sharing with lots of people and that they were mm. of a similar age and they were planning on having a family they did actually have a daughter called Maya but this was an unplanned pregnancy yeah. 
And I actually read in the same article that I was talking about was that when, apparently, when Picasso heard that she was pregnant, he said that it was the greatest happiness. And that he tried to get divorced to, from Olga, who was his wife, who he had met through um, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, she was a ballerina. I think. Oh my gosh. Mm. Gosh, what an interesting time to be alive. All that was going yeah. on at the same time. So, so interesting. interesting. And she refused. And they were separated. But um, I think that they really were very much in love. And apparently she spoke to him a week before he died. He died at 92. This is Mary Therese. Yeah. And then she died a few... About four years later. Um, and I, I, I think that this is what they did so brilliantly through the art. And the quote that it begins with, which I just wanted to read out, is that the work that one does is a way of keeping a diary. Yeah. And Picasso has so many extraordinary quotes. This is a particularly apt one for the exhibition. And what I loved is that we were going through it and they would have rooms which were months. Yes. And you just think, oh my God, we've I only got believe- to March. I know, we sort of we felt as though we'd been there for a good 40 minutes already. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary so extraordinary and really really well curated exhibition and incredibly difficult to do because this was the first solo exhibition of Picasso's work Mm. at Tate Modern ever Mm. so the pressure I mean doing a Picasso exhibition even when it's following on for something that's going to produce competition but doing the first one ever how do you make something fresh and new and they did it they did they did it with one year of his life which you couldn't do for virtually any other artist and centering around this love affair i was his wife looking at that exhibition oh just kill me it would be worse than looking at photographs oh way worse because there's so much more emotion yeah yeah i know and that i think that did create a little bit of sadness it did it was the ending was actually really down because yeah. she, Marie Therese Walter almost drowned and she lost the lovely blondness of her hair because she contracted a disease from swimming in the river. Mm. And there are these images of people drowning that Picasso painted. And then the war began and following on from, uh, in stylistically as well, Guernica, his very famous painting of war and famine and just, it's, the depiction of suffering. Right. It's one of the most... I guess, well, they're about to... I mean, and they and they say this, you know, um, Hitler rose to power, you know, mere months after the exhibition ends, December in December. Yeah. And they do, Hitler rose, rises to power in January 33. Yeah. So, and then that's the beginning of, you know, the rise of fascism in mm-hmm. Spain, in mm-hmm. Italy, in Germany, and then the whole world mm. goes into complete time after mm-hmm. World, World War Two. So it mm. was actually quite an interesting metaphor to have ended on that low. And the 32 was such a interesting year yeah, in terms of art foreign policy domestic policy the interwar years were so interesting in yeah. europe but i think that they used a very good quote at the end and i can't remember exactly what it was but it was about beauty and seeing the beauty in different circumstances i think mm. and it just provided this tiny little lift before you went out of those doors yeah but yeah i just feel like i learned so much from it i'd really encourage you to go along if you are going to be in london absolutely uh it's on until the 9th of september i think mm-hmm. um and i would also say that the national art pass which is what i have um as a birthday present from my wonderful godmother Gillian, uh gives you 50 percent off when you have that and they've got a three-month trial at the moment i think which gives you a discount so you could try that out over the summer and explore some galleries and what get other some discounts do they have um so included? we went to the british museum mm-hmm. we saw the um exhibition with rhoda 
They've also got the Charles Dickens Museum, which is free on that. I think the Barbican might be included. National Gallery, all the main galleries is normally 50% off. And then smaller ones, I think the Keats House, which I really want to go to, mm. is free. So it just, I think it can introduce you to lots of different places as well as saving you lots of money. Absolutely. And also just a good thing to do on a Sunday. Yeah, such a lovely Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure. Um, Very excitingly, next week will be our first episode with a guest. Um, And the way that the guest format is going to work is that he will be choosing each category, which will be very exciting for Charlotte and I. Yeah, each figure. We don't even know what they're going to be Yeah, we don't know. So that'll be really exciting. We'll be able to discuss that with him. And he is definitely one of my... Uh, most recent favourite people. So I'm very excited <laughs> to have him on the podcast. And as you, always, yes. please rate, review and subscribe if you're on Apple please Podcasts do. That would be or amazing. on Stitcher. And if you're on Spotify, you can click follow and then you will have all the new episodes come into your phone. Yes. And just thank you so much for all your continued support. We really appreciate yeah. the and feedback. Please, please give us feedback or write a comment or anything. We love to hear. Tweet us at the Figure Podcast and follow us on Instagram for all of the images that go along with each episode. Um, and have a lovely weekend in the scorching sun. And if you are not in London, then enjoy. It's countrywide, right? The Scotland's w- been having lovely weather as well. Wherever you are. No, but we have listeners in we have listeners in America. There are listeners. Charleston is one of our most downloaded and cities. Italy and Italy. So thanks, it- George. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you are, enjoy the sunshine. I yes. hope that the sun is shining, and we will see you next, see you next week. week. Bye bye. Until next time.